Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. So we finished, uh, Pastor Blake and I finished uh, last week looking at these, these Advent songs, these two great thirsts that everyone has, and then we're going to look at what the result is then of being beloved of God. So there was a man by the name of David Brainerd. Has anyone ever heard of David Brainerd? Most of you have not. Some of you have, most of you have not. And that's okay. He lived several hundred years ago, and he was actually a missionary to Native Americans in the Northeast. And he was a contemporary, actually a bit younger, than Jonathan Edwards, who was maybe the most famous theologian in America. And he pastored in Massachusetts. Anyways, David Brainerd didn't even live to age 30 because he became sick and he died. But one of the great things was that he kept a diary of his work to the Native Americans, and it was published by Jonathan Edwards. And I want to read you this quote from David Brainerd, who is preaching the gospel to these Native Americans. He's seen conversions. He's seen people's lives changed. And here's what he records. He says, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. When my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I find that my Indians begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified even in small matters when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and him crucified. So what he is saying, and this is something I think that the Apostle Paul teaches in his 13 letters in the New Testament, you can't change people and you can't change yourself simply by trying harder. You don't become more and more like Jesus by simply being told, hey, be like Jesus that it doesn't work that way. You can preach morality to people all day long, but it doesn't make people change. What Brainerd says here is that if we actually begin to grasp who Jesus is for us and who Jesus is in us, then our lives will become more and more like Jesus, more holy, without having to be told very much at all. What Brainerd is saying is that the only thing that he kept saying to the Indians was Jesus and Jesus crucified. Who Jesus is, what he has done. And he saw his converts becoming more and more like Jesus without having to be told, hey, do this and don't do this. Isn't that a strange thing to many of us? Many of us grew up in churches where what we heard was, do this and don't do this. 
But there's no power in that. So why are we spending one week looking at one word? And the reason is, is because to make sure that we understand who the Christian is in relationship to God. Okay? So let's, let's take a look at this word, beloved. If you're on page 12 of your sermon outline there, beloved, it comes to the Greek word agapitas. So many of you have heard this term agape before, right? It means love, unconditional love. I want to read for you something from a New Testament scholar, William Barclay, has said about this word agape. He says, agape is the spirit which says, no matter what any man does to me, I will never seek to do harm to him. I will never set out for revenge. I will always seek nothing but his highest good. And he says this, agape is unconquerable benevolence, invincible goodwill. Agape, the way that God loves us, is unconquerable benevolence, invincible goodwill. So who does who does God love like that? We can see it in the two passages. The first in Matthew three seventeen, Jesus at his baptism by John, a voice comes out of heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then did you notice it in Romans one in the text It was almost a throwaway line. A lot of times we look at the New Testament and we just read what we expect to be there and don't notice the weight of what's being said. In verse 7 it says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints or called as holy ones, set apart ones. Christians are called the very same thing as what Jesus is called. Christians are called the very same thing as what Jesus is called. Why? Why would that be the case? Why is the Christian called God's beloved? We've got to look at what it means then for, for God to have unconquerable benevolence and invincible goodwill toward us. It's important for us to see that God doesn't love us because we're lovely. He doesn't love us because we're lovely. He loves us simply because he loves us. God doesn't love Pastor Blake or TJ or Elder Paul or any of us because we are lovely. Not because we're lovable, not because we do the right thing, not because of who we should be. If God were to love us in that way, what would happen? The moment that we become unlovely, that love would just cease. But if he loves us simply because he delights in loving us, that's good news because that's a love that we can't lose. That when we're unlovely, when we're ugly, when we have our moments and our days and our, for some of you, this has been an absolutely terrible year. You're not loved because you're lovely. 
He loves you simply because he delights in loving you. Is the object of his affection. So, if that's the case, that's what this beloved means. How does it apply? It doesn't help us on a Sunday morning just to simply learn knowledge and not understand how to apply it to our lives. So how does it apply? And I want to I begin to answer this question by sharing an example about the power of an undercurrent. So it was nine and a half years ago. This was, and Bonnie and I were married, and we were taking our first vacation since our honeymoon. And we had a wonderful friend that let us stay in a very small house about three blocks from the beach in South Carolina. And we were really excited about this. Bonnie was painfully pregnant, and I was excited about the beach. So we roll in from Pennsylvania to South Carolina after several-hour drive, and when we came up, storms were on the horizon. And I was really mostly disappointed to see these storms coming in. And if you've ever seen it, storms roll in from the ocean, it's this ominous sight. But not to be deterred, my favorite thing about going to the beach still is jumping up and down in the waves. I'm not the type of person who likes to go to the beach and read. It's sandy, it's messy. I'd rather be in a nice, comfy uh, chair to read. So I love going to the beach. I love bobbing up and down in the waves. And I told Bonnie, I said, look, we've been waiting for this for months. We're going to go to the beach before it starts pouring down, and I'm going to bob up and down in the waves, and you can watch me. So sure enough, we go to the beach, and um, we get out there, and you know how many people are out there? Three. For as far as you can see, three, and then us. And those three guys were out bobbing in the waves. And I think, oh my goodness, I've, I've made new friends. I'm very excited. So Bonnie sits on the beach, and I go out, and I'm bobbing up and down in the waves, and the waves are huge before a storm like this. And I get the idea, man, these waves are so big, I can get out maybe... 200, 300 feet, and then swim as fast as I can toward the beach as a wave pushes me. And I did this a couple of times, and it was wonderful. Then I thought, I wonder what it's going to be like if I get way down toward the bottom as a wave comes, and then swim like this. So I went out, and I did that, and this huge wave was coming, and I started to go, started to swim, and I felt its force push against me, and then my face hit a sandbar, and my feet proceeded to fold over me all the way as if I was doing some amazing yoga pose, and I heard my back like that, and I can't move because the wave is pushing against me, my face in the sandbar, and my feet like I'm in a circus. Well, the wave passes, and I think, I, I've just been paralyzed. So I kind of float up to the surface, and fortunately, I, I was not paralyzed. I wasn't even injured. It's like I went to nature's chiropractor. It was wonderful, but I was so thankful. What this, what this showed me at the time, and looking back, 
to the time nine and a half years ago when it was nearly snapped in half. I realized that God was teaching me a great spiritual principle. When you're caught in an undercurrent, you can't wish it away. When you're caught in an undercurrent, you can't wish it away. You can't pretend that it doesn't exist. It controls you. And in the same way, God created all of us with certain cravings, or we can call them yearnings of the soul, that we cannot pretend that they don't exist. We can't wish them away. They press upon us, and they require a response. And if we look at these, these yearnings, these undercurrents, or we can call them thirsts, and two things will happen. The first is that we'll better understand them, and the second is we'll understand how being called God's beloved satisfies these thirsts. So look at your outline here. The first thirst is the thirst to be known. The thirst to be known. You and I thirst, yearn to be known. At the concentration camps in Auschwitz, uh, starting in about 1941, the German soldiers began tattooing the prisoners who were strong strong enough to work in forced labor. And they tattoo them here at first on the forearm. One reason for this was just to simply keep up with the vast number of prisoners that were coming in. About every day at the, at the peak, you had thousands of new prisoners coming into the concentration camp. But uh, there was also a more sinister reason to do this, and it's not simply inventory. They would tattoo them to take away any remembrance of who they once were. So, for instance, Saul Rosenthal, once he arrived at Auschwitz, once he got his tattoo, no one ever again would call him by his name. He would forever be, for instance, A12654. They did this, the Nazis did this, in order to take away the identity of the people arriving. They were no longer who they were. They were Nazi workers and prisoners. So they were, they were tortured and abused and killed, but they were also robbed of their names and stripped of their identities. And so in that, in that capacity and in that place, they became unknown. They became unknown. You and I desire to be known. We don't desire to be like that. We don't desire to have a foreign identity placed upon us and our own selves robbed. We actually do want people to know us deeply. It's a thirst that we have. This is why maybe some of us go, as we've been recruiting for community groups, you think, wow, that would sound like a great thing for for me to go to a community group and for people to actually get to know me but I'm afraid of that. 
And that actually speaks to the next thirst here, the thirst to be loved. We want to be known, but here's the question. What if people really knew us? What if they really knew you? What if you opened up the Pandora's box of who you are? Most of us would be terrified. We would. Quite frankly, if, if, if I'm being honest, I don't want you to know me. Because I'm afraid that if you actually do know me, you won't love me. This is the thing that keeps most of us out of community with other people. We're afraid that if people actually do know us, they won't love us. They'll reject us. But that's not the way that God is. If you could take a look back in your bulletin on page 6, from Isaiah 62, what Kay Weber read for us earlier. In verse 4, it says, No more shall men call you forsaken or your land desolate, but you shall be called my delight and your land espoused. For the Lord delights in you and makes your land his spouse. Do you think that God actually did see the sin of his people? Of course. He actually knew them. I mean, everything that they were was laid bare before him. And what does he say? You are my delight. You are married to me. Your land is espoused. And he gives them this new name. He sees them. He knows them. And yet he loves them still. And he gives them a new name. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament, don't we? People getting a new name. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel. Even in the New Testament, Saul becomes Paul. And you... At your baptism, you actually get a new name. In Matthew 28, when Jesus is saying, baptize them, the word is into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. At your baptism, the name placed upon you is not your own name, but the name of the triune God. If you're a Christian, you have been renamed. And when God renames someone... It's because he's taking delight in them. Because he loves them. And it's him saying, I've given you a new and a better and a lasting name. Okay? So, you've been given a new name, Christian. You are God's beloved. I want to ask just a very practical day-to-day question. What is the result of having a new name? What's the result of having a new name? And to answer that, I want to ask a question. When God gazes at you, what's the expression on his face? 
I want you to really try to answer this. Not out loud, please. We're Presbyterian. (laughs) When God gazes at you, what is the expression on his face? And I don't want you to worry about being doctrinally correct. I want you to be honest. Is he joyful? Is he sad? Is he disappointed? Upset? Is he stoic and just expressionless? One missionary had the courage to be brutally honest with her response to this question, and she recorded it in her diary. You're getting two diaries today. Here's what she said. She said, God's demands of me were so high, and his opinion of me was so low, there was no way for me to live except under his frown. All day long, he nagged me. Why don't you pray more? Why don't you witness more? When will you ever learn self-discipline? God was always using his love against me. He'd show me his nail-pierced hands, and then he'd look at me glaringly and say, Well, why aren't you a better Christian? Get busy and live the way you ought to. And when I came down to it, there was scarcely a word or a feeling or a thought or a decision of mine that God really liked. When God looks down at you, do you feel like that? If you do, it's because you're not seeing yourself in the way that God sees you. When God looks down at anyone who is in Jesus, he sees you through the lens of Jesus. What does he see? You know, our most common benediction, even here at Trinity, Zephaniah says that he's smiling from ear to ear. He's dancing with delight over you. Not over you, who you may be in glory. Over you now. Over you now. Now, why is that the case? Because when the Father looks at you, you know what he sees first and foremost? His son. If you are a Christian, you are in Jesus, and when he looks at you, he sees Jesus first. And when he looks at Jesus, he cannot stop grinning with this explosive joy. In the same way that he ripped apart the heavens 2,000 years ago and called out to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Those of us in Christ live in the rainforest of God's incessant delight. And his love is like the mighty Amazon coming down to water a single daisy. The result of a new name, Christian, is that you are God's beloved. You are God's beloved. Now, really kind of want to close with this question. Some of you might be asking this. Some of you grew up hearing, hey, God loves you. God loves you. Very true. 
what's the difference between hearing God's, God loves you and hearing you are God's beloved? I love a good steak. It is not my beloved. There is a vast difference between knowing that you're God's beloved and just hearing that you're loved. Because you're the apple of his eye. You're his pride and joy. So we want to be able to taste that. You know, Jonathan Edwards, who I mentioned at the beginning, he says, look, there's a great difference between understanding rationally that honey is sweet and tasting its sweetness. And this morning, what we want to do is taste the sweetness. Taste the sweetness that we are God's beloved, those of us who are in Jesus, and that he takes great delight in giving us this new name. And we're the object of his affection. So let's, let's give thanks and pray in that. Father, we give you thanks that you delight in us. It's almost unbelievable that the God who created the universe, who set the stars in motion, who takes care of the fish at the bottom of the sea, could delight in people who reject him constantly. Yet we, being in Christ, are your children. And we thank you that even in much greater ways as earthly parents, as our own children, are beloved by us in the apple of our eye, how much more are your children in Jesus beloved by you, Father? Let us remember this. Through your spirit be at work in us. That when we then when we are tempted to not believe this, you would press it upon us and see us as you see us. We pray these things through Jesus our King. Amen.